0: Cool. How's everybody? How many ladies retired that went to the retreat? <laughs> yeah, I better be careful. <laughs> it's, delirious. it's delirious. They're delirious. If you got your Bibles, open up the Book of Isaiah. We're going to be taking a look. Uh, just. Prior to our time of prayer, we'll be taking a look at chapter 34 and 35. God willing, Jackie's willing, we'll see what happens. As we take a look at chapter 34, we want to uh, be reminded, we just finished the section in Isaiah called the six woes, and we're entering into these two chapters that are looking directly into the final seven-year period of time during the tribulation And the millennial reign that takes place afterward. So as we take a look, chapter 34, chapter 35, that's where the focus is in these sections. We're going to see a pretty consistent teaching throughout the scripture. And that is, first judgment, then comes glory. First judgment, then comes glory. Over and over and over again, we see that taking place. It's no different as we take a look at the end of days or the end of time. So as we take a look at chapter 34, that's what we're going to be focused in on. He begins, uh, chapter 34, verse 1, Now come near you nations to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their nations armies now as we take a look we need to to constantly be reminded and to to consider when we look at the 70th week of daniel when we look at the tribulation period it is a time of god's indignation that means his great wrath the scripture lays out for you and i that in this world we will have tribulation. The word for tribulation is thalipsis. It means there's going to be pressure. We're going to be pressured. Where does the pressure come from? The structure of the sentence tells us that, this, that, that pressure is coming from the world. The world, the enemy, Satan, the devil. He's going to bring everything he can against us. Our life is not supposed to be a bed of roses. It's going to be a struggle. But that wrath, that indignation, that tribulation source is not god let no man say when he is tempted that he is tempted by god or that he is tried by the lord When, when the scripture lays that out it's that god is not using evil to try to destroy us but rather god's working in our life good to make us strong, persevere and endure. But when we look at this time period, this 70 or this 70th week, the 7-year period of time, the Bible consistently calls it the time of God's wrath, the time of God's indignation, the time of his vengeance, the time of his recompense. That God is going to bring the world to account for all the things that have been done A, the suffering that his people had gone through. B, all the wrongs that had ever been done to them. And we'll see that as we go through Scripture. So when we look at it, understand we're talking about the indignation of God. This is God's fury, God's wrath. The Bible tells us in the book of Thessalonians, you and I are not appointed unto wrath. If you want to take the picture, take the picture like this. We are the bride of Christ, right? We are set to be wed to Him. One day there will be the, the great uh, uh, feast of the, the bride. The bride's feast. Gathering together with Jesus Christ. If that bridal feast takes place after the tribulation and you and I are destined to go through the tribulation, then the bride is about to get the snot beat out of her by the groom. That's what the Scripture says. It's the indignation of God. Jesus Christ pouring out his wrath. If he's pouring out his wrath on his bride, the picture does not is not the pattern that we see in scripture not fulfilled. So that pattern that the Lord is going to be pouring out his wrath upon them. The indignation of God. When we see indignation in chapter 34, it's not just a little bit upset, it is his great wrath being poured out. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also, their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall roll up like a scroll. All their loss shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, and as a fruit falling from a fig tree. Now, as you read that, it should bring into your mind some rather uh, um, familiar verses, because... Revelation chapter 6 goes through the same phrase, the same phraseology. When we look at Revelation uh, chapter 6, especially uh, chapter 6, verse 14, what is Revelation chapter 6? It is the, the seven seals being opened at the beginning of the tribulation period. Remember, we see the Antichrist come on the scene, the first seal. We have Antichrist come on the scene. Then we have war followed by famine and pestilence, death. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. Culminating in a great global earthquake where all the great men are going to hide themselves under the rock and say what or who can save us from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That's what we're looking at in that time. And Isaiah bears that fruit forward with us. Now in verse 5, listen, he's going to say, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. Now whenever you see Edom, Edom in the scripture is an idiom. Edom was founded by Esau. You guys remember Esau, right? We, We had the twins, Jacob and Esau. You remember there was something the scripture lays out for us that God loved Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What was God's problem with Esau? If you remember, Esau despised his birthright. When the scripture talks about Esau despised his birthright, it doesn't mean he despised the money his dad was going to leave him. That's not the birthright. The birthright of the firstborn son was to be the priest in the family. He was to be the spiritual leader. And when the scripture says Esau despised his birthright, it lays out for us that he was a man of the flesh, focused on the flesh, desiring the fulfillment of the flesh, and he cared nothing for the spirit at all. So Esau founds a a land known as Edom and the people as Edomites And as we study on Wednesdays, we go through the book of Numbers, we're going to see the Edomites be synonymous with the enemies of God. Here, when we're speaking prophetically, looking into the future at the end times, when the Lord talks about smiting Edom, it's an idiom for the enemies of God. Those who despise the spirit and desire fulfillment only in the flesh, which is pointing to, again, Christ's rejecting world that he's going to pour out this wrath. His sword will come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. Now the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. And when we look at that, we're seeing all this picture of God's judgment, but he's, he's changing his direction right now. He's talking about his judgment, but then he talks about the sword of the Lord being filled. Literally, it's enriched with blood. It's enriched with blood. You see, the subject is going to change from the judgment of the sword being brought down on the people to the the sword of the Lord being filled with blood by the sacrifices of his people. Take a look as he goes on. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness. You remember what belonged to the Lord in the sacrifices? We studied in Leviticus, the blood and the fat, the blood and the fat. So here he's saying, listen, by the sacrifices of my people... The sword of the Lord is made full. The, 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 the people of God. And who are the people of God here? Who's Isaiah writing to? Israel. Nation of Israel. It's Probably a good time to talk about a few views and, and where their foundation is. Listen, there are three views. Legitimately, they kind of break down in others, but I'll share with you the top three views about the kingdom or the, the end of days, the, the reign of Jesus Christ as king. There is a millennial view. The millennial view, this is a view that I hold. This is the direction I will come from uh, in the direction I believe that Scripture teaches that there will be a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years on the throne of David. Those were all promises that God gave to the nation of Israel and to uh, Abraham and to David that were not, they were unconditional promises. God said, I will do this. Didn't depend on their behavior. So the millennial view believes that God is yet going to fulfill that plan. It falls in line with Romans 9, 10, 11 that teaches that God's not yet done with the nation of Israel. And ultimately, there will be a millennial reign where Christ is going to reign, where Israel is going to be, ultimately, true Israel is going to be saved, and they are going to sit beneath their king. That's what they've been looking forward to, the promises that God's given them. So that is a literal millennial view. Then there's a post-millennial view. The post-millennial view basically teaches that man is going to continue to get better and continue to get better and things are going to, the natural evolution of man until the church, as the church grows and fulfills her role, is going to usher in the kingdom based on how good things get. There's not very many people that hold to that view anymore. There's a, a few of the mainline uh, denominations that, that lean in that direction, but most of them are kind of giving up on the idea that the world's getting better and that it's improving. Okay, so the post-millennial view is, is kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, the one that is really gaining ground these days is a view called amillennialism. All millennialism, ah, or when you put the A before something, it means no millennium. All millennialism teaches that Israel lost all her rights when she uh, disobeyed and didn't recognize her Messiah, that all the promises of God now are transferred from Israel to the church. There will be no millennial reign of Christ because that was promised to Israel. The church has taken her place. And so it looks forward to the church being caught up together with the Lord and the, the millennium uh, just being figurative and figuratively applied to the church today. Now, from those three views will come each person's eschatological view. Now, their view on what happens in the end times, their view on post, pre, mid, trib, they're all based on or come out of variances of those views so those three views uh those are the three uh study the scripture and see what the scripture lays out for you and uh, be fully convinced in your own heart but uh, i believe that the scripture teaches there will be a actual literal millennial reign of christ so that's where i'm going to be coming from from uh the millennial view so as we take a look He's saying now, he's looking at all the sacrifices that Israel has made. And he's saying, hey, the sword of retribution, the sword of judgment has been made full by the sacrifices of my people with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Oh, that's interesting because Basra is the capital of Edom. Capital of Edom. Most people believe that the scripture lays out for us in fact in the book of revelation that god is going to hide his people in the earth that the nation of israel is going to run to the lord a flood's going to be following them the Lord's going to swallow up his people and protect them basra or edom can also be known by another name some of you may be familiar with edom by the way means red and Petra, if you have ever been there, is the reddest place probably you will ever see. You might as well be on Mars. In fact, it's kind of trippy. Um, I'm kind of excited because hopefully in a year and a half, we're going to take a trip to Israel and we will go to Petra. Get an opportunity to walk through the Sikhs in Petra that are a thousand feet tall. And, and you can touch the two sides of the, of the walls of this sandstone cliff that are all variant colors of red, and, uh, and just wander your way through, and all of a sudden, poof, it opens up into this city carved out of solid stone. Now, n- nobody's certain that that's where God's people are going to go, but uh, that's, the, that's the popular view that, that the Lord will take His people to Petra, and there He will supernaturally protect them as they're living there in this town carved out of the rock. So uh, it would be quite difficult to attack or do anything there without being seen it's very easily defended Uh, the nabateans lived there for years and years and years uh, before they ever fell so as we take a look that may be where god's going to bring his people now when the scripture lays out for us hey the lord has a sacrifice in basra a great slaughter in the land of edom So he lays out the sacrifice in Basra. He could be speaking about the nation of Israel hidden there in Basra and Petra. And then as the Antichrist comes against him, the Lord's going to protect them. There'll be a great slaughter in Edom. Again, remember, Edom is an idiom for anyone who rejects the Spirit and is living after the flesh. So the the attitude of the world in general during that time uh, really could fulfill that role. Then he goes on. And talks about the utter uh, slaughter that will take place. The wild oxen will come down with them. The young bulls with the mighty ones. Their land will be soaked with blood. And their dust saturated with fatness. So this offering that's taking place in Edom is judgment of God. Poured out again on a Christ rejecting world. And the reason he talks about wild bulls and mighty ones. He's talking about all everything, nothing will be spared. The land will utterly be demolished, wiped out, obliterated in this time. And look at verse 8. Again, is important for us to grasp. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. That word for vengeance literally means for the wrongs suffered. The wrongs that were suffered. It's God's vengeance for wrongs suffered the wrongs of His people. That they have suffered. And actually, literally, if you do a study, there is no greater uh, people group that have suffered on this planet than the Jew. None. Forever. They've been hated wherever they've been. Isn't that a little weird? It's like somewhere, something spiritual just knew that God had placed favor on a people and for that purpose... The enemy tries to obliterate. And over and over again we see. So here, the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord's vengeance. And the year of recompense. Literally retribution. This is for wrongs done. For things suffered. For wrongs done. The Lord is pouring out His vengeance and His retribution. And it says who He's talking about. "...for the cause of Zion." You know where Zion is? Zion is a mountain upon which Jerusalem is built. Israel is Zion, synonymous together. So the Lord says that His vengeance and His retribution is for Zion. The Scripture lays out that this judgment that comes... ...is going to come because of the things... ...the wrong suffered, the things done... To that nation. To the nation of Israel. The things that were, that were poured out against his people. And namely, who being the, the, the forefront of that? Will be Jesus Christ. For salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was born a Jew. Rejected by the world. Don't think he was just rejected by Israel. He was rejected by the world. And don't just think it was the nation of Israel that nailed him to the cross. Romans nailed them to the cross. They're Gentiles. So when we take a look at it, we're we're all guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty of of the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But when we stand in a place and we receive the promises that were wrought on the cross by Jesus Christ, we stand in a place of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. When we reject that, now we've rejected all hope. And God will pour out the wrath that He poured on His Son. On this world. Pouring out that wrath. His vengeance. His recompense. Now look at this. It's interesting. The next couple of verses. Its streams will be turned into pitch. Its dust into brimstone. Its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste No one shall pass through it forever and ever. And when we look at that, it's interesting because until recently, man could look at this and say, that doesn't make any sense. How is that even possible? You guys remember in the war uh, with Iraq when the oil fields started to burn? Now let me ask you a question. What happens if in the oil fields of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran... Somebody sets off a nuke. What happens to all the oil, the pitch, all the stuff that's in the ground? Man, it's going to be one giant, humongous plume of fire. The Lord lays out for us in this this judgment. Now, it doesn't mean that God's going to require a nuclear, but it's interesting to me when we look and we can see how we can see how that can occur today. There was times in the world you could say, I don't know how that, that has to be a miracle of God. But today, mankind has the power to make that happen on his own, doesn't he? So the Lord says, part of this vengeance, part of this recompense, this fire that will burn. We read about it in the book, again, Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. You want to know what's going to happen in the tribulation period? Chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation covers a seven-year period of time. The seven seals, the seven bulls, the seven trumpet judgments, all poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. It covers the fullness of the retribution of God. Chapter 6 to 19. So we take a look here. We, we're seeing highlights of it in verse or in chapter 34. Now in verse 11. But the pelican and the porcupine will possess it. And the owl and the raven will dwell in it. he will stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now I have to pause here because there is some words that appear in this section that appear in only a couple other places in the scripture one of those being genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the world became without form and void the world became tohu ibohu without form and void the exact same phrase we see here the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness tohu imbohu without form and void the same kind of a concept the 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 poetic uh language that that isaiah is using he's pointing to the fact that hey there's gonna nobody's gonna understand what's going on it's emptiness it's fruitfulness there's nothing of any value it's just void void like space there's just nothing there and that's what he's talking about here. It's going to be like that. Tohu and Bohu. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all its princes shall, shall come to nothing. So where, when this takes place, there will be whole nations obliterated. Gone. No more. They'll call for leadership, but there will be no leadership to call. And thorns will come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles on its fortresses. It will be a habitation for jackals and a courtyard for ostriches. So whenever the scripture poetically starts to talk about this, it's that the land is going to return to the wild. The people aren't going to be there anymore. It's obliterated, of no value. Just the wild beasts live there. And then as he talks about that, as he talks about that in verses 14 and 15, All of a sudden, he begins to talk about animals that don't even exist. No one in verses 14 and 15 understand the animals that he's talking about there. And there are many teachers who say that what he's talking about in verses 14 and 15 is the demonic activity that's taking place in those places. Aren't we going to see great demonic activity take place during the tribulation period? Oh, yeah, we're going to see the pit opened up. We're going to see locusts that have a king named Apollyon or, or Abaddon, and that they're going to have the, the, the hair of women and the teeth of lions, the faces of men. I mean, this is going to be weird looking stuff. What, what, what's the pit? The pit is the place where God has locked up, awaiting judgment, the worst of the demons. The absolute worst of the demons he has placed in chains. He lets them loose. Why? Because, hey, you don't want me and you say you want to live life for for yourself, you want to follow the teachings of the devil, great, I'll give them to you. Here he is. See how you like him. So when we look at verse 14 and 15, check it out. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion, also the night creature shall rest there. What's a night creature? And find for herself a place of rest. And here the arrow snake will make her nest and lay eggs. The arrow snake. The Hebrew word for arrow snake is lilith. Lilith is traditionally spoken of a, some type of female demon in their lore. I'm not trying to say that there are or aren't female demons. The scripture lays out for us that angels uh, are, are typically spoken of in the masculine sense and never seen uh, a female angel and sense a demon is a fallen angel. I'm not sure exactly, but I know that they pulled this word from their tradition and it doesn't fit any other animal. Here in this land will be the night creatures. Here in this place will be these demons. And these demons will make their nest and lay eggs and hatch and grow them under her shadow. There's going to be demonic activity like no one can even believe in those last days. Because Satan's last great effort, right? His last great opportunity. He's going to to pull out all the stops. There also shall be hawks gathered, everyone with her mate. And in verse 16, Now search from the book of the Lord and read, Not one of these shall fail. That's God saying, you can count on it, it's going to happen. You can count on it, that it will come. Search the book. Not one will lack her mate. When he talks about that, he's saying, he's talking about that it will come to its fulfillment. It's, it's not something that depends on one thing or another. These things are going to occur. For my mouth has commanded it, and His Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and His hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. By the way, a measuring line shows ownership. Ownership. Listen, God declared to us what's so special about Jerusalem when we study it again in the book of Leviticus, what is so special about Jerusalem? What's so special about Israel? God says, it's mine. Nation of Israel has it on lease, but it belongs to me. No wonder people fight over it forever. No wonder the enemy's always coming against it. No wonder the only city known as a city of peace has never known peace since its, its beginning. So we take a look. The Lord is showing his ownership. He told this earlier in Isaiah. Hey, whoever brings a sword against Israel, brings a sword against Jerusalem, brings a sword against me. That's my land. Belongs to me. He lays out his measuring line. He says, they will possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. In chapter 35, the wilderness and the wasteland will be glad. For them. Now he's turning his view. The wilderness and the wasteland. Remember, I told you in Scripture, we're going to see judgment and then we're going to see the blessing. We're going to see judgment and then we're going to see the, the land being healed, the kingdom age of Christ. So as we take a look, he says, Listen, the wilderness and the wasteland will be glad for them. For who? You, me, for them. For anybody that is able to enter into that time. Romans 8.22 says all of creation groans with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's what he's talking about, Isaiah 35, verse 1. He's talking about that time. The lands are going to rejoice. When Jesus comes, the land's not going to be bummed. It's stoked. It's going to be stoked that he's going to come, that he's going to remove the curse That the land is going to once again flow the way God intended it to flow. And we'll see that here. Listen. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. He's saying, and listen, when you go to Israel with me, we'll be sitting together with a guide and the guide will say, we see that this has been fulfilled today. Look at Israel. It's blooming everywhere. Well, actually what the scripture says is the whole land is going to blossom instantly. Not that a bunch of guys are going to get together and figure out how to make everything grow again. But when Jesus returns and his feet touch the earth, boom, it's done. The desert blah. There's no more desert. Desert gone. Sorry. We're going to have to ride dirt bikes someplace else. <laughs> Desert gone. Everything is going to bloom, blossom, like the rose. It's going to be beautiful the instant that his feet touch the ground. That uh, The glory of Lebanon. Lebanon speaks of fertility. The excellence of Carmel um, and of Sharon. They speak of beauty. They, they shall see the glory of the Lord. Now, word glory is the word kabod. It, it means his, his inherent value, the inherent value in God. They'll see his glory. They'll see the value of God. Well, you and I, hopefully we got that worked out. But in that day when Jesus is revealed as the king for the nation of Israel, they're going to see his value, the beauty of the Lord and the excellency of our God. The word for excellency, it speaks of his majesty and his dignity. So they're going to see his value and his majesty as he comes as king. And then look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come. Hey, strengthen. Now listen, think about it. The nation of Israel, are they suffering during the tribulation period? Oh yeah, worse than ever was in Germany. Worse than ever. All the efforts of the enemy will be to obliterate them and tribulation saints. To obliterate them utterly. To wipe them off the face of the earth. They're going to suffer, sure they are. But all the while, what's the encouragement? Strengthen the feeble hands. Strengthen the weak knees god is coming let me tell you something from the moment the tribulation period begins to the end there is only seven years period that's it seven years to the return of christ seven years till his feet touch the ground so the encouragement that they're given to one another, hey, guys, listen, say to the fearful heart, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come. And how is he coming? With vengeance. With vengeance. People are going to pay a price. When Jesus returns, what's happening in the world? The armies of the Antichrist are going to be gathered together with all the armies of the world, battling against one another, The Antichrist's total design or desire is the obliteration of Israel. As he's coming to obliterate Israel, he hears about the kings from the east. He meets them together in the plains of Megiddo in the Valley of Armageddon, which, by the way, if you come to Israel, you get to see. I always wondered how all the armies of the world would fit in a valley till I stood on top of Mount Megiddo and looked. 185 miles long, the Jezreel Valley, the the Valley of Armageddon. It's not some little place. It is humongous. Humongous plain. As they're gathered in that place, Jesus returns for vengeance. We'll be with them, according to Revelation chapter 19. Every single person agrees on that. We'll return with Christ, but he don't need us. He don't need us. He'll destroy them with the brightness of his coming. With a word from his mouth. And he will go through those armies like a hot knife through butter. Gone. The Bible says in the Jezreel Valley that the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. That's deep. That's deep. So this is the way that God's coming. He's coming with vengeance. He's coming to, to uh, bring recompense uh, with the recompense, uh, recompense of God, and He will come and save you. He's coming to deliver the nation of Israel. He's coming to fulfill the promise He gave to Abraham. He's coming to fulfill the promise that He gave to David. Unconditional promises. And what will take place? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. the The tongue of the dumb will sing. When we look at the scripture and we know prophetically, the scripture is pointing. Uh, it points to Christ in a dual fulfillment. But what he's saying, when Jesus returns, they're not going to be no more blind, no more deaf, no more lame, no more sickly. That's all over. That's done in the millennial reign of Christ. That's finished. It's over. There won't be the blind. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And water will burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. When Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, which if you come to Israel with me, you'll get to hang out on. When he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is going to split down the middle. Water is going to flow from the Mount of Olives. is going to flow into uh, the the Mediterranean and it's going to flow to the Dead Sea. And as soon as that water hits the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is going to live. Poof. Not going to be a Dead Sea anymore. Be a living sea. Water will flow in the desert. Streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool. And the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there will be grass, reeds, and rushes. They're going to see this entire, the entire world will be changed. And then look at verse 8. There will be a highway will be there and a road. It will be called the highway of holiness. Where does it go? Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Goes wherever you need to go. Won't it be nice to get directions? Where are you going? So and so. How do I get there? Get on the highway to holiness it take you there. I mean, really, doesn't the highway to holiness take us wherever we want to go? So, there will be a highway in that place. And listen, the unclean will not pass over it. It will be for others. Who will it be for? Whoever walks the road, even though he's a fool, will not go astray. What's that mean? No man will have to ask for directions again. (laughs) We won't ever have to ask. We're good to go. We hit the road, even if we're a fool, we're okay. No lion will be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. What did he just say? The redeemed will walk there. Who's the redeemed? Those who have been purchased, bought with a price. The redeemed are going to walk there. The redeemed will walk on on the highway to holiness... And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Where'd they go? They had to go somewhere for them to return, didn't they? The ransomed of the Lord shall return. I'll I'll leave that for you guys to to poke around into. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. You know, I love that section of the verse, and this is why. Because so often joy and gladness are just outside our reach. And the Lord says, in that day they'll obtain it. It's not something to strive for. I have to strive for joy. I have to choose joy. I have to, I have to make a decision that I'm going I'm to be joyful in order to experience joy here. But in that place, I'm going to obtain it. It's going to be right there. It's going to be all around us, all over us, basking in the joy of the Lord. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. No more sorrow. And sighing sighings that thing that man does whenever he doesn't understand what God's doing. <sighs> but that sorrow and sighing will flee away. So as we take a look at verse or chapters 34 and 35, again, Looking forward to the tribulation period and time of God's judgment and beyond to the millennial reign of Christ uh, when all things would be set to right. Then in Isaiah we come to the middle section which is a historical narrative which I've been waiting for since we started but we're going to wait a little longer because it's time for us uh, to come together and spend some time in prayer. So um, we'll go ahead and... and, uh, just spend this time focused on the Lord as we consider uh, the Word that God's brought us. We want to, in any way possible, press into the Lord. Press into what God wants to do here in Buell, what God needs to do in our life. I encourage you, if the Lord lays on your heart to share Scripture, share it. If the Lord lays on your heart to, to pray, pray. The only thing I ask, is that we try to keep our prayers down to three to five minutes so other people can pray too in the time that we have. Um, and uh, we'll just call upon the name of the Lord. We'll go ahead and dim the lights, and, and um, I'll get us started and, and close us off when we're done. But I invite you, as, as God is moving, as God is directing for revival, remember, that starts in us. And, and then it flows from us To other people. And that's our desire that God would pour out His Spirit upon us to affect others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, Jesus, that we can come before you in this time, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that that as you pour out your word upon us, your word is given to us for encouragement, Lord. Your word is given to us so that we can realize it's all going to come to pass. Lord God, as we look ahead and we see things on the horizon, we see the way that our world is, God, we're moved by compassion and a desire, Lord, to see Your Spirit poured out. And even as it was in the beginning of the last days, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples being filled with Your Spirit turned the world upside down. We desire to see that in our day. And I know, Lord, as I as I look at history and, and, and read about these things, God, that it takes time because God's people have to reach a place where they're real willing to make you the center of everything they do. But when that happens, oh, you pour yourself out in such a way. So God, as we come before you, we just ask, Father, that you would guide us and direct us, lead us. Father, that you would move within us. God, that we would desire you. And God, that we wouldn't get hung up on performance. Lord, it's not about performance. It's all about the heart. When my heart is totally focused after you, even when I fail, I'll still be known as a man after God's own heart. That's what we want, Lord. We want to be focused and dedicated, committed to you. And as your committed children, Father, we want to affect the world around us by the power of the Holy Spirit moving through, around, affecting the people around us. So, Lord God, we pray, move, lead, and we will follow.